Hello, and welcome back to the Complete History of Science, Series 2, Episode 5, The Triumph of Hippocratic Medicine. Primum non nocere, or in English, first do no harm. This is the most famous promise of the Hippocratic Oath, and sets out in no uncertain terms what we've come to expect of a modern medical practitioner. Today, all around the world, this oath is sworn by medical students hoping to enter the profession, as indeed it has in some form for over 2,000 years. However, the medical landscape in which the oath was first conceived is almost entirely unrecognisable from the one which we inhabit today. To give an example of what medical practice could be like in the classical world, in ancient Greece, there existed a procedure known as succussion, which was intended to treat the curvature of the spine. It involved the patient being tied head down to a padded ladder and raised to roof height. A crowd would often gather to see the spectacle as the patient was then dropped perpendicularly down several stories using a block and pulley. This, naturally, was a practice with little evidence base and many potential risks. And importantly, it highlights how ancient peoples, desperate for relief, could easily be exploited by grifters, offering cure or respite. The Hippocratic Oath, then, can be viewed as a turning point in Western medicine, marking a new age of reason and the beginning of a more rigorous form of medical practice. And there's an extent to which this is true. However, unfortunately, history, real history, really fits these neat narratives. For instance, contrary to our expectations, the oath was not originally intended as a promise made by a doctor to a patient, but instead was a covenant made between a physician and his apprentice. And this is important, because beginning from around the 5th century BC, a new sort of physician was emerging in ancient Greece. These Hippocratic physicians performed a new form of medicine, which needed to separate itself from traditional forms of healing. Binding medical apprentices to the same rules and customs as their peers was an attempt to codify medicine and separate out good medical practice from bad. It may have been partially a social contract, yes, but perhaps just as importantly, it was a social signal intended to set apart a new type of medical practitioner. The aim of the oath in this context, then, was partially just good public relations, intended to differentiate the good Hippocratic doctor from other charlatans who claimed to practice medicine. Historically, it's also important to point out the oath was very unlikely to have been devised or sworn by Hippocrates himself. Hippocrates, in fact, has a relatively uncertain biography, even by the standards of the 5th century BC. It's thought that he was born on the island of Kos in around 460 BC, but much of his later life is inseparable from myth. These myths, in fact, are often not particularly flattering. For example, one biographer accuses Hippocrates of burning the library at Kos to eliminate any medical rivals. Another suggests that he plagiarised the prescriptions of the legendary figure Asclepius 
before destroying his temple and claiming clinical medicine as his own invention. Modern historians sensibly treat stories of Hippocrates' life with suspicion, and some have gone further, doubting his existence as a historical figure. In summary then, there's no good historical evidence which links Hippocrates to the oath. And the same is true for the vast body of medical literature which is also attributed to him. Nevertheless, regardless of authorship, these texts, known collectively as the Hippocratic Corpus, survive largely intact. And together, they give us a clear picture of the new medical practice which appeared in ancient Greece between the 5th and 3rd century BC. In total, there are around 60 books in the Hippocratic Corpus, all written in Ionic Greek. More than likely, these works would have had many different authors, and their books were only collected retrospectively. If we were to browse them, we could easily point to many specific instances where they conflict or outright contradict. But, nevertheless, what they share is a common approach to medicine. A significant part of these works is aimed at the emerging band of Hippocratic doctors who are springing up in ancient Greece and they deal with the practical aspects of medicine. For example, there's much advice on dealing with the clinical side of medicine, such as diagnosis and prognosis. Without the benefit of the analytical laboratory, physicians were expected to rely on their senses, including smell and taste, to diagnose patients. These examinations first looked at the face, eyes and hands, before looking for other symptoms such as coughing, sneezing, flatulence, pustules or lesions. These works stress that a large part of becoming a Hippocratic physician was in recognising these symptoms and identifying the disease. But perhaps just as important was prognosis, which meant predicting the course a particular disease would take. The texts stress that this was a key element which the Hippocratic physician must master, because it allowed him to establish his credentials with the patient and their relatives. If the patient was treated and survived, the doctor, of course, would gain credit. But if the patient died, it also allowed him a strong defence against malpractice, having already predicted the course the disease would follow. However, from the perspective of the history of science, diagnosis and prognosis are not necessarily what is important in marking out this new Hippocratic medicine. As we discussed last week, the Egyptian priest physicians performed diagnosis and prognosis in much the same way. And though the Hippocratic physicians may have been particularly skillful in this endeavour, it's not possible to argue that this was truly something new. But there was something new to be found in these works. One obvious point is that the Hippocratic doctors never claimed to be priests as well. The literature demonstrates that while they weren't necessarily irreligious, they did reject divine intervention as a basis for the cause of or treatment of disease. An example of this approach is evident in the Hippocratic text known as the sacred disease, which discussed epilepsy. In the ancient world, there was much stigma attached to epilepsy, 
and it was commonly ascribed to punishment by the gods. However, the author of the sacred disease argues that epilepsy was no different from any other disease and should be treated as such. Instead, the author looks for material causes and argues that epilepsy is triggered by the buildup of phlegm in the brain cavity. He even offers some evidence as justification, observing that during a dissection of a supposedly epileptic goat, he found the skull contained what he called foul water. However, what I think is truly new is not necessarily the lack of religion, but something more fundamental. Crucially, texts like the sacred disease were making an argument for the causes of disease. Earlier medical writings, such as those from ancient Egypt, usually took the form of lists of ailments, together with corresponding treatments and rituals. These works were pragmatic, relying on past experience of what had seemed to work. But they also lacked any discussion of the causes of disease. In contrast, central to the Hippocratic corpus is an investigation into what it means to be healthy and what are the causes of disease. The most famous of these new theories of disease was outlined in the Hippocratic text known as On the Nature of Man. This put forward a very influential theory of disease, which would become one of the most important ideas in Western medicine for the next millennia. On the Nature of Man argued that disease was caused by an imbalance of the so-called four humours. These four humours were the bodily fluids blood, phlegm, yellow bile and black bile, which according to this theory should exist in the correct proportion in the body. This idea is reminiscent of the work of the philosopher Alcmaeon, who as we mentioned in the last episode, viewed health as the state of balance, while pain occurs when there's either a deficiency or an excess. This theory of the four humours, however, was much more well-developed. Each humour was thought to correspond to a particular climate, so phlegm was associated with cold, and hence is prevalent in winter, while yellow bile is hot and more common in the summer. One Hippocratic work, known as the Epidemics, investigates the cause of various new fevers and hemorrhages suffered by the inhabitants of the islands of Thassos in the northern Aegean. The author attributes these conditions to changes in wind and rainfall which befell this island. This supposed link between climate and disease was very common in Hippocratic work, and hence one form of treatment was to move to a different climate to restore the natural balance of the humours. In fact, all treatments within this scheme can be seen as an attempt to restore the balance of these humours. Changes to diet or herbal remedies were often prescribed as treatment with this goal in mind. If, for example, a patient was diagnosed with a fever and fever was linked to excess bile, precautions were issued against foodstuffs which supposedly produced bile. If we understand this idea, other suggested treatments, which at first may be difficult to comprehend, such as bloodletting or enemas, likewise seem a natural conclusion. The theory of the four humours then became the framework 
on which much diagnosis and treatment were built. And this was remarkably influential across the ancient and medieval world, persisting in some form until the advent of germ theory in the 19th century. Despite this, it's important to remember that the Hippocratic corpus was not a unified body of work. In reality, it was a collection of works which were written by very different authors over the course of 300 years. And, as we've mentioned, these authors were not necessarily unanimous in their ideas. For example, while many of the authors agree that the balance of the body's fluids or humours are the cause of disease, the authors didn't necessarily agree how many of these humours there were, or even what these humours were. The author of one of these Hippocratic works, Diseases 1 for example, concentrated only on two humours, bile and phlegm, and claimed they were the main cause of disease, especially under the influence of heat and cold. Another author, Thrasymachus, added pus to bile and phlegm, while another still added water. What then are we to make of the theory of the four humours advanced by On the Nature of Man? Why did this idea of four humours become accepted as the basis of medical theory throughout the ancient and medieval world? Well, the answer is rather simple. It was because of the influence of the greatest physician of the classical world, the man known as Galen. Galen lived several centuries after the writing of the Hippocratic Corpus. He was born in the Roman Empire in the 2nd century AD in the city of Pergamon along the Turkish coast. Primarily, Galen was a practicing physician who trained in his home city before traveling and studying in the Greek-speaking cities of Smyrna, Alexandria, and Corinth. Famously, one of his early roles had been as the chief physician of a gladiator school in his home city of Pergamum. But, around the age of 30, he left for Rome, which by that point was the place to be for a young and ambitious Greek. Because despite the time he spent in Rome, Galen was very much a Greek and was raised in Greek culture. As a young man, he had been highly interested in philosophy, particularly Plato and Aristotle, and read widely. However, he was also highly practically minded and considered some of the questions posed by philosophers on the nature of God or the beginnings of the universe to be futile. This practical mind may have been what drove Galen to become a doctor, and his bookishness, combined with his pragmatism, were a potent combination in the field of medicine. Central to Galen's view of medicine was the belief that Hippocrates was the ultimate authority, and his own medical beliefs were largely derived from the Hippocratic corpus. However, he also tended to pick and choose the parts which he favoured, and in order to justify them, ascribed these parts to be genuine works by Hippocrates. It was Galen, for example, who settled upon the four humours as the cause of disease, and wrote that this was the favoured theory of Hippocrates. Likewise, it was Galen who popularised the connection between the four humours and the basic qualities heat, cold, wet and dry. Galen believed that every patient 
had some personal combination of these qualities, which predisposed them to certain illnesses. Therefore, it was the role of the skilled physician to restore these humours into balance. Indeed, all of Galen's clinical practice was based on this principle. Many of the therapies which became associated with humoral theory also gained prominence due to their use by Galen. For example, he popularised the treatment of bloodletting as a way to remove excess blood and to restore balance in the patient. Galen, though skilled as a physician, was also sensitive to the circumstances of the individual patient and only advocated bloodletting in cases where the patient would likely withstand the treatment. This pragmatism, unfortunately, would not always be practiced by Galen's successors. Galen also advocated for the use of drugs to treat the specific circumstances of the patient, though always with the idea of restoring the balance of the humours. He determined that most drugs acted on the body through one of the four primary quantities, and Galen took it upon himself to examine these drugs and record their working within the context of humoral theory. Most of the drugs Galen suggested were likely taken from other writers, most prominently Discorides, who had written an encyclopedia of pharmacology in the mid-first century AD. It's also true that the efficacy of most of these drugs had already been shown through long use, some dating to the Egyptian papyri, which we discussed in the last episode. However, he also experimented extensively with these drugs, and for example, attempted to rank them by potency, grading them on four levels, from the most potent, that is those that could cause immediate death, through to those whose effect was almost imperceptible. This classification, however, was no small task, and he only managed to classify some 160 of them, from a list which ran to more than 500 drugs. Galen, however, was industrious, and committed to becoming the best physician he could be. So, not content to comment on well-known drugs, he also travelled the Mediterranean, looking for new treatments. He interviewed shippers in Alexandria, bargained with camel drivers, and personally entered mines to stock up on precious minerals. In one instance, he came upon a man in Bithynia, in what is now northwest Turkey. This man knew of a herb which could dissolve any blood clot. However, unwilling to share this new drug, Galen, somewhat unsportingly, had the man arrested and tortured until he agreed to divulge his secret. This rather ruthless aspect of Galen's personality often came to the fore. However, it may have also in large part been one of the primary reasons for his unprecedented success and fame as a doctor. Galen eventually acted as physician to the best and most influential men of Rome, including Roman emperors such as Marcus Aurelius and Septimius Severus. In his own writings, he had a tendency to brag, but nevertheless, the ancient sources are unified in acclaim for Galen's medical abilities, and even his enemies really dispute his success or ability as a doctor. And it was partly this success which ensured the legacy of Hippocratic medicine. 
The other part of Galen's life, which ensured his influence in posterity, was the huge body of medical literature he left behind. After Galen's death, he left perhaps as many as 500 treaties, and although not all have survived to present, Galen's work still occupies some 22 volumes in the 19th century edition. Through the centuries, these works on diverse topics such as physiology, pharmacology, hygiene and dietics will never cease to be copied and translated, becoming the authoritative sources of medical literature throughout antiquity and the Middle Ages. In fact, so numerous were these works by Galen, they created a problem in posterity, as it was extremely difficult to summarise this vast body of work. And this problem is compounded when we remember that it must have been very unlikely that most physicians could afford to have access to more than a handful of Galen's complete works. Often then, historians will refer to Galenism, which were the set of common medical practices following this period. This was a simplified, more digestible form of Galen's work, which would eventually dominate medical learning throughout the Middle Ages of Europe and the Golden Age of Islam. And so it was that medicine in the succeeding period would continue to feel the influence of both Galen and the Hippocratic corpus, albeit in a constantly changing form. However, I'll stop here for today, though we are far from done with Galen, who, like Aristotle and Ptolemy, will continue to reappear for some time to come. In fact, this is true even in the next episode, where we will explore ancient anatomy. I hope you can join us then. <laughs>